And if you would, you can be turning in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 2. We're continuing on in our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we will step into chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. So if you would turn there with me. And the key truth that we will see in this text this morning is this. We grow in joy and peace by joining heaven's worship of our humble king. Let me read that again. This is the key truth we're going to see in Luke 2 this morning. We grow in joy and in peace by joining heaven's worship of our humble king. So let's read that now this morning. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. And the baby lying in the And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we step into this text this morning, a great question for us to, to open up with and reflect upon is this. Where do you look for joy and peace? Where do you look for joy and peace in your life? You know, however you answer that question, for, for many of us, I'm sure there's kind of an underlying assumption when we look for joy, that joy is often found among the extraordinary. You know, we tend to turn to big things for joy. You know, a big event, vacations, new stuff, or just, you know, maybe a change in the little things in your normal circumstances. But joy, we often associate with some sort of extraordinary moment or change in our lives. And that's why so many ads this time of year, you know, they know you're looking for joy. And they say, so they say, give the gift of joy by buying this watch or this perfume. Um, everyone is looking for joy. And yet the big event, so often, it doesn't touch your life in a lasting way. And the vacation will end. And the new stuff that promises you joy just becomes stuff when you unbox it. And so a joy eludes us. We keep searching for it. And it's very much the same with peace. Often, 
our assumption when we look for peace is that you have to somehow get out of or escape the ordinary. You know, what causes you to, to, to long for peace? It's the mundane ordinariness of your life, the week in, week out grind. You know, five-day work week, your role as parents, housework, all of those things. You think, if I could just get out of that for a moment, then I'll have peace. And when those moments come, so often we're confronted by the fact that peace still escapes us. Your heart becomes restless very quickly, even when you escape the ordinary. And so we keep searching. And most of the time, most of us don't really have enough time or energy or resources to pursue joy and peace by finding the extraordinary and escaping the ordinary. And so what often happens for a lot of us is we settle for entertainment, endless entertainment. That's why the entertainment industry is a multi-billion dollar, like hundreds of billions of dollars in our world today. That's staggering if you think about it. It hasn't always been that way. But so often we settle for this illusion of joy and peace. If I can't find joy and peace in my life, I can watch a story where other people have it and I can settle for that. And yet that illusion shatters when the show's over, when the book is finished, when the game ends. And often we're left sitting there just wondering, you know, what have I been doing? Nothing has changed. I'm sitting in the same spot and I still am looking for joy and peace in my life. And the beauty of the Christmas story, and this text really is, when we think of the Christmas story in Scripture, we think Luke 2, 1 through 21. This is the Christmas story. And the beautiful thing about it is that it flips, on our, it flips us on our heads. It upends everything we think we know about finding joy and peace. Because heaven's joy and peace come down to earth, to us, in the ordinary, in this story. And what we will see in this, in this story is that the way we grow in the joy and peace that God gives us through Christ is by joining heaven's worship of our humble king in the midst of our ordinary lives, week in and week out. And that takes off the pressure and it invites us to something that can truly last in Christ. And so let's, let's dig into that this morning. We'll look first at verses one through seven and see the birth of Jesus, our humble king. Now as you look at verse one with me, you see that Luke puts Jesus' birth in the context of world history. He talks about Caesar Augustus, and in the days leading up to Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, and it was a decree for his empire, styled here as the whole world, this is the Roman bombast and pride speaking here, to be registered by a census. And so this Caesar Augustus, this was Octavian. This was Julius Caesar's great nephew and adopted heir. He is the one who, after Julius Caesar's assassination and after a brief triumvirate, eventually becomes the sole leader and the first emperor of Rome. He is the one who defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra and consolidates his power and he built history. This is a moment when mighty roads and buildable before. And it is this Caesar Augustus who is on Rome's throne when Jesus was born. And he calls for a census because if you're an emperor, the way you flex your power is you count your people. Because if you can count them, one, they do what you say. They are your subjects. They are pawns upon your board and you can move them where you will. And if you can count them, you can tax them. And if you can tax them, you have gold and you have silver aplenty to do whatever you want as emperor. And if you can count them, you can send them to war to fight your battles. And Israel in the Roman Empire, they were exempt from military service, but they were not exempt from taxes. And so this census would have been decreed by Caesar to number everyone to know who he could tax and how much. And so as this census is made, there's a middle-level politician in the Roman Empire named Quirinius. 
He's governor of Syria, and it's a put upon his shoulders to make this happen in Israel. And Luke notes that this was the first registration, verse 2, when this man was governor of Syria. He says the first one because later on, about 10 years later in AD 6, there was another census, and that one met a lot of backlash by the Israelites. They had a revolt, an uprising that was squashed by Rome. Luke alludes to that in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. So Luke here, though, he's saying this census wasn't that one. It didn't meet much resistance. It was maybe a little smaller, and it went off largely for Rome from their perspective without a hitch. Everyone goes, as Israelites often would for a census, back to their hometown. Because in Israel, so much of your identity was tied to who you were with your family, and therefore, which part of the land of Israel was yours. And so when there's a census, you would go home, and that's where you would be counted. And that's exactly what happens with Joseph and Mary. Joseph is a descendant of King David. And so he goes to the city of David, Bethlehem. And the amazing thing, as you look at this, you know, Lucas set the context in the biggest and broadest way he came with world history, the emperor of Rome's decree. And yet beneath that decree and behind it and through it is working a will that is much mightier than Caesar's. Through Caesar's decree, God is affecting his plan. God is moving history. He is moving this proud emperor to fulfill his long promises of sending his promised king. In Micah 5.2, God had promised that this king would come to Bethlehem. And listen to these words from Micah 5.2 about the smallness of Bethlehem. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so the providential irony here is really beautiful. Caesar is moving the whole world, his whole empire, to put silver and gold in his coffers and to build up his empire and to strengthen his grip upon it. But God is using that same Caesar's decree to cause his son to be born in a tiny town in fulfillment of his old promises. It's as Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he will. That's what's happening here. Our God is mightier than Caesar and he's working in these very small ways to keep his promises of old. And so Joseph and Mary, they go and they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this would have been about a 90-mile journey. And so they would have either traveled for several days on foot, or perhaps they had a donkey for Mary to ride. But either way, uh, these were not ideal circumstances for a young pregnant woman to be traveling. You know, if you have, have been pregnant, um, or, or you can just imagine that, you know, you are walking 90 miles, or maybe riding on a donkey, which doesn't make it much more comfortable. Um, as as a, a father um, who, you know, took my wife to the hospital not quite six months ago, uh, this is like my worst nightmare. Like, oh my goodness, we've got to travel 90 miles, but no hospitals, anything could happen. You know, this is, this is a scary thing for them. And yet, in God's kindness, they make it. They make it safely to Bethlehem. And we don't know how long they were there. Luke just says in verse 6, you know, they get there and sometime while they were there for the census, the time comes for Mary to give birth. And she gives birth to Jesus there. And Luke paints a very simple, very simple and humble picture for us. After giving birth, she swaddles Jesus with strips of cloth. So just like, you know, you might have a sleep sack or you, you swaddle your child today. They did the same thing then. A crib, she lays him in this manger, a feeding trough for animals. And so this manger became the son of God's first crib because as Luke says, there was no room for him and for his family anywhere else in town. 
And your Bible may have, if you have an ESV, it likely has a footnote on the word in um, that explains that word translated in could also have meant guest room. Um, That's how that word is used by Mark in Mark 14 and by Luke in Luke 22 to describe the room where Jesus and his disciples celebrated Passover one last time. The guest room would have been an extra room used for hospitality purposes, whether a special meal like the Passover or, in this case, housing travelers. And so whether Luke has in mind here and whether uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus uh, had no room either in a separate inn, like a lodging place, a separate building, or somebody's guest room, the point is the normal places of hospitality were filled up. The places where you would go when you visited town to stay were, were, were booked. There was no room for them in those usual places. And the picture Luke is painting then is that off to the sidelines, on the sidelines, not at the hearth of a home, not in a palace, not even just, you know, in someone's extra bed, but in a room designated for animals. This is where the promised king, this is where the son of God makes his entry and is born into our world. It is a picture of the utmost humility of Jesus. And so this this should give us pause as we reflect on that, and we see how far down he was willing to come to be among us as Emmanuel, God, with us. And as one commentator points out, these seven verses that that start out Luke chapter 2, there's almost a way in which they're a downward spiral. You start with Caesar Augustus, the grand and glorious emperor, and then you move and you see Joseph, this humble carpenter and descendant of David, and then you see Mary, his young betrothed who is with child, and then at last you come to their son, to Jesus, this promised king who is laid in a manger in poverty and humility. And so the king of all creation is not Caesar in his palace in Rome, but is this humble child laid in a humble manger on the outskirts of a tiny town. Here is our God. Here is our king. And this manger is just but the first stop in Jesus' humble path to the cross. It indicates the whole trajectory of his life as our Savior down. Down in humility. Down from the glory of heaven and down into the depths of our guilt and our darkness and our death. He has come to take all those things from us and he is born in poverty and he's placed in this animal's feeding trough and he will eventually die a shameful execution between two ordinary criminals. And he does all of this because the love of the Father and his own love for us has sent him here to bring us up out of our sin, out of darkness, out of death's shadow, and into his glorious light to fill us with his own spirit. This is why he came, humbling himself as he went, all for that joy set before him, the joy of bringing you back into the family of God. And so Jesus' humble birth teaches us what Christmas is all about. It is not about Christmas magic springing our spirits from the ordinary into the holly jolly extraordinary, It's not about you trying to make yourself feel a certain way this season, despite how well or badly the year has gone for you. What this season is all about is remembering and looking forward to God coming to dwell with us in the midst of our very real and very ordinary lives so that we may grow in joy and peace forever in his presence. And the way we do that, the way we grow in joy and peace is by joining heaven's worship of this, our humble king, who is in the major. That's what we see next as we turn to verses 8 and 21. Here, we see the worship of heaven and earth. 
So Luke, after describing Jesus' birth, he then shifts our gaze to the outskirts of Bethlehem. And out there, there are shepherds who are keeping watch over their flock at night. And in that day and age, shepherds were what we would today call blue-collar workers. They had a hard but very essential job that was at the heart of their economy. You know, someone had to care for the livestock. If you've got an agrarian economy, you need to have farmers carrying their job. They had long hours. They had smelly work. That was their lot in life. They were very ordinary people, and they were going about their ordinary jobs on what looked to be an ordinary night. And yet, these are the first to receive the good news of the incarnation, of the coming of Jesus, aside from Joseph and Mary, and they receive it from heaven's own messengers. So think of the contrast. You have these ordinary, humble shepherds watching their sheep. They're stoking their fire, so they've got enough light so they can spy out any coming thieves or prowling wolves. They're maybe making small talk as they take turns, keeping watch and going to sleep, keeping the sheep together, not wandering off. And then suddenly out of nowhere, an angel from heaven appears to them and the glory of God himself shines around them, making the darkness as now light. And this light is the brilliant radiance of God's glory and majesty and holiness made visible. It's awesome and it's overwhelming. It makes our brightest of firework displays at Disney and laser light shows and all of those things we can do through our technology. It makes that stuff look like a tiny flashlight whose battery is fizzling out. This is the glory of God, and they are beholding it. And so at the sight of this glory, they are rightly filled with fear. Fear falls upon them. It's a very vivid way of saying they are scared out of their minds. Because, and they should be, because they're thinking in their minds, how is it that we are beholding God's glory? They would have felt undone and exposed. How could they stand in the presence of heaven? And such reverent fear is the right response to God's glory and holiness if you think, oh, I wouldn't have been scared, well, who do you think you are that you could stand on your own two feet before your glorious and holy God and not tremble, knowing that he is holy and that without Jesus you are not? So their response is right here. And yet, notice what the angel says to them, verse 10. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Because of the gospel. He has come to bring them good news of great joy that will be for all the people, and that last part is key, all the people. The angel doesn't say all the peoples here, referring to all the nations bringing in the Gentiles. That will come in Luke's narrative next week with Simeon's prophecy. Here, it's more talking about all the members of Israel, whether rich or poor. The point is, there was nobody who was too poor, too small, too ordinary to receive by faith the life-changing good news of Jesus coming to dwell with us. The angel's point here is that the shepherds are not out just because they're ordinary shepherds, but that God in his sovereignty has chosen to come near to them in the very ordinary circumstances of their life and to make known the glory of the gospel. And so the angel then unpacks the content of the gospel by declaring three titles about Jesus, helping the shepherds understand who it is that has just been born in their midst. And these three titles help also explain what Jesus had come to do. First, the angel says he is a savior, He's a savior, and that means he has come to deliver his people to rescue us from our enemies, from Satan's sin and death, and from all those who oppose God. Remember Zechariah's prophecy last week. This is a key part of God's promises. If God can't beat the bad guys, then we have no hope. But Jesus is a savior who's come, who's come to defeat every bad guy that opposes God and that threatens us. 
And in calling Jesus Savior, the angel is making a subtle polemic against Caesar because Caesar Augustus, under his rule as the first emperor of Rome, the imperial cult started. That is the worship of the emperor. He was hailed by some as a god or the son of God. There were inscriptions today that referred to him, uh, that we found that referred to him as a savior, as the one who brought all hope and peace and good news. The word for gospel is attributed to Caesar Augustus. The angel's saying, no, no, no. Caesar's not the savior of the world. The peace he forges, it is imposed through power and cruelty, and it will not last. Your true savior, he is here. He's come in your midst. His name is Jesus, and he's in a manger. That is where our savior is. And then second, the angel says, this child is the Christ. And the Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Messiah and Christ, what these words mean is the anointed one. The one who is designated and set apart by God to fulfill his promises. One of the most important uh, Old Testament texts about the Messiah is Psalm 2, especially verse 2. The Lord's anointed is this promised king who will come and serve the Lord perfectly and faithfully and will defeat all of God's enemies and rescue God's people for all time. So being the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus is the true and ultimate prophet and priest and king. He's the one the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to with its various failed leaders. Jesus is the one who will not fail in any way. He is the one who will fulfill every promise to the smallest of details. He is the promised one that God has sent to make everything new again. And then lastly, the angel says, this baby is Lord. And this title here, Lord, this is the word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the word that was used to translate God's name, Yahweh. The word Lord is, is used in that way. We use it in English as well in our translations of the Old Testament. So in calling Jesus Lord, the angel is saying, this baby is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity made flesh. Your God has come to dwell with you in person and in great humility. And so all these things together, Jesus, he is Savior. He is the Christ. He is Lord. And he has come to fulfill these promises and to make all things new in him and to redeem us and make us God's people. And the shepherds are the first that heaven declares this to outside of Jesus' own family. And so before, though, they can go and they can find this child they've been told about, a vast portion of heaven's angel army appears with this one angelic messenger. And so now, you know, again, put yourself in the shepherd's shoes. They have front row seats to heaven's worship service of Jesus. They now watch as potentially hundreds of angels appear to them and are singing a hymn to God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so notice that the, the heart of their song here is the gospel. It's all about heaven coming down to earth to bring joy and peace in the person and work of Jesus. God, for his own glory, has now sent peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased, to those that he's shown his grace, that he is bringing to himself because of his love. And so the core of the gospel, this is the angel's song. Heaven is worshiping its humble king. And not only that, but think about what's already happened. Here the angels are worshiping Christ. The animals have given up room in their own space so that Jesus would have a bed. And so heaven and nature are joining together and singing as the hymn goes. And so the question is, will the rest of the earth, will those made in God's image, will the shepherds join in heaven's worship 
of our king. And so as the angels return to heaven in verse 15, the shepherds decide immediately to go to Bethlehem and see what God has revealed to them. They respond to the angel's message with faith because they realize that God himself has shown this to them and he has called them to go with haste. And that's a great little detail there. They go with haste, verse 16, and find Mary and Joseph and the baby. Faith runs to Jesus. It goes with haste. If you feel as though you're slow in coming to Jesus when you sin, you kind of drag your feet, or you're slow in coming to Jesus when you suffer, or when you're restless and uncertain in life, let the shepherd's simple example encourage you and quicken your pace in the power of the Spirit. Run with haste to Jesus. He is ready to receive you whatever your need in him is, and he will meet you. So don't dawdle. The king is here. Come and worship. And that's what the shepherds do. And look at what happens when they find him. They come and they proclaim the gospel that they've received from the angels. They tell everybody they possibly can that this child on heaven's authority is Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. And they're telling everyone that they can on their way there and maybe anyone else who's gathered around to see what just happened with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They're telling everyone what they've heard from heaven. And everyone who hears the shepherds proclaim the gospel, they wonder at their message. They're amazed. You know, these ordinary men are claiming that they just saw heaven open up before them and they were in the glory of God and they've been told something. And what they've been told is staggering, that this kid who was born and is put in an animal's feeding trough is king. People are wondering at that. They're amazed. And they're amazed that such ordinary people be chosen by God to do this. And yet, despite everyone's amazement, we actually don't know how many of these people turn to Jesus and receive the gospel by faith? Luke doesn't say. We don't know. But what we do know is that all of this helped Mary grow in her faith. Look at verse 19. Luke contrasts. He says, you know, all these people who hear what the shepherds say, they wonder at it. They're really moved by it, at least for a moment. But Mary, her response is a little different. She treasures up all these things, everything that's happening. She treasures it up and she ponders it in her heart, which means she's thinking deeply about it. She's connecting the dots between what Gabriel had told her before, what she has experienced with Elizabeth and watching John be born into the world, what she's experienced now with Jesus' birth, what she's hearing from these shepherds. She doesn't just let it pass her by. And in this way, Mary is a very good example to me and you of how to cultivate our faith as we hear God's word. You cannot treat scripture like a meme or a gif or TikTok because scripture is not meant to be scrolled through. Most of the content you consume in your life, if you quantified it, it's a lot. And most of it, you pay attention to it for like two seconds and it's gone. And it shapes you a little bit, but it doesn't get sunk into your heart. You don't treasure it and you don't ponder it. But scripture, we have to treat differently. This is the word of our God. It must not be scrolled through. It must be treasured and stored up so that we can ponder it and think deeply about what it means and that the spirit would use it in our lives when we need it most. You won't know when you need it. But you know you get to hear it each week and treasure it up. You know you have access to it when you have time to read it on your own. And so those moments are when you treasure it up. You know, this is also why with our sermons at, at Christ Community, we always include in the bulletin questions. Those questions are not a test. It's not like we're gonna have a blue book exam afterward and say, all right, you know, write out your answers. We'll see who paid most attention. Those questions are to help you do this, to help you store up the word of God and ponder it in your heart throughout the week so that it would bear fruit in your life. And the more we treasure and ponder, just like Mary did, both on our own and together, the more the word of God will grow our faith in Christ, 
our humble king throughout the whole of our lives. So Mary's example is worth imitating here. And then, after Luke describes how Mary responds, in verse 20, he returns back to the shepherds. And they join heaven's worship here. Just as the angels were praising God and glorifying him, so now the shepherds, they go back to their job, but they do so forever changed. They go praising and glorifying God because of everything they have heard and they have seen. Everything the angels said to them that would happen, it happened, and they beheld it. And their trust in God and their faith in his promises and in his love for them, it has been moved and built up because of everything they've experienced. And so their experience here throws them into deeper worship. And yet notice it also doesn't lift them out of their job. They go back to their ordinary work, but they go back as worshiping men. It's the rhythm we all have. It's what you're doing this second. You've come out of your ordinary job. You've come out, uh, and not, not out of it, but you've paused it. It's the Lord's Day Sabbath. You pause your ordinary job today. You come with your ordinary life, your ordinary circumstances. You have uh, a struggle getting everyone in the minivan, but you get here, and you're here. And it doesn't feel spectacular, although these lights are really sweet. But that's not there to manipulate your emotion. You're still you, and yet you are not just in the Ben Robertson Community Center. By the power of God's spirit, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us, when we gather together in faith as the people of the Lord, we are approaching the throne of our God. Do you believe that? Because so often when we, when we read this text, when I read it, I think, man, it would have been amazing to have been one of those shepherds. I think I'd put up with the sheep my whole life if I could have seen the angels, if I could have had heaven open up to me and, and, and behold its worship, if I could have stood before the manger. We all long for that. We wish, man, I wish I could have been there. But wouldn't it be better to stand before the king, not at his manger, but at his throne? And don't you see, that's what you're doing right now? According to Hebrews 4.16, remember the worship series. As Cameron reminded us, that text is about coming to Jesus in worship, coming with all of your needs, all of your stress, all of your anxiety, all of your guilt and your worries, and you bring all of that to Jesus before his throne as we gather in worship and you receive every grace, every mercy, everything you need in Jesus, and you get to do it every week. You don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to make yourself feel a certain way. You just come by faith because you're coming to Jesus, and he is here with us. And that's what this text reminds us, that we get to week in and week out come and we can grow in joy and we can grow in peace because we get to come and worship our humble king. And Luke, he caps off this section with a transition verse that tees up everything we'll see next week. In verse 21, he notes, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. And as Paul explains in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, that means Jesus was born under the law. He obeyed it perfectly. He was circumcised. He received the sign of the covenant when he was supposed to. And that signals he was identifying with God's people. He would obey where we disobeyed. He would be perfectly faithful where we were faithless. He would not fail. Every detail would be fulfilled in him from God's law. And he would do all of that to redeem us, that we could become God's redeemed and beloved adopted children in Jesus. That's what he came to do as our humble king. And so will we come and worship him and receive all he offers us in his gospel. And as we think about that, Pastor Tim Keller, he offers very helpful guidance for thinking through the way we respond to Jesus in worship. Because again, too often, going back to some of the things we said at the beginning here, we're haunted by that drive for the extraordinary. We want things to just feel more than they feel. You, you want that moment to, to mean more than it seems to mean. 
And yet that can make it very hard to see worship clearly and truly for what it is. So listen to what Keller says in his Reflections on Advent, in Hidden Christmas. He says this, The Christian life begins not with high deeds and achievements, but with the most simple and ordinary act of humble asking. That's faith. And then the life and joy grow in us over the years through commonplace, almost boring practices, daily obedience, reading and prayer, worship, attendance, and I would add participation, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as our neighbors, depending on Jesus during times of suffering. And in these ordinary things, bit by bit, our faith will grow. And the foundation of our lives will come closer to that deep river of joy. Don't be put off by the ordinariness of the means of joy, for in that ordinariness is hidden the extraordinary riches of the gospel. And so as we reflect on our time in worship this morning, as we use the ordinary means of grace, as we'll also prepare to see one of those in baptism in a moment, ask yourself, how is worship growing you in joy and peace this Advent season? How is our time together building you up in those ways, giving you life in Christ, filling you with joy and peace bit by bit? It won't happen all at once. Maybe you will have a week where you come here and you, you are just filled with great joy. And amen, that is a gift. But for most of us and most of the time, it's gradual. And you'll miss it if you don't look for it. So ask yourself that question. And then also, following the shepherd's example, as they go and tell everyone, who can you invite to come and worship our humble king this Advent season? You know, as we think about these questions, especially that second one, people kind of expect you, if you're a Christian, to invite them to church at this time of year. It's Christmas time. Um, and so, you know, think about who in your life you could invite to come to worship because everybody is looking for joy and peace. You may get to talk about it with your coworkers. You know, they talk about joy and peace at this time, what this season means to them. And just ask them, you know, have you found it? How's that going for you? And then take the opportunity. If you say, like, I'm just waiting for God to give me an opportunity to invite them to church, that's it. If they talk about joy and peace, that's your in. Tell them, I've been finding joy and peace this Advent in worship. And I'd love if you would come with me. You know, there are two more Sundays we have together this, this Christmas season, and of course there's every Sunday, but invite people to come. Follow the shepherd's example, because so often what people expect us to do as Christians at this season is just fight about, you know, them saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. But if you want to put Christ in Christmas, then you've got to bring people to church. Nobody wins and nobody benefits from more people just saying Merry Christmas at the checkout counter. But anybody can receive everything they need in Jesus. They can receive the joy and peace their hearts long for that only Jesus can provide when they come and they worship our humble king. And when we come and we worship Jesus, you may have come in this morning just bogged down in the depths of woe because of things that have happened this week or because of things you've been carrying all year. But the beautiful thing about worship and about finding joy and peace in Christ is that that's not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is all about how you feel in the present circumstances. And when you're suffering, you're not happy. But that doesn't mean joy and peace cannot be yours when you're suffering. When sin has struck you down, either your own or someone else's. Because the thing about joy and peace is they're not tied to you. They're not tied to your circumstances. They're anchored to Jesus. So joy and peace can, if you will, time travel. Your joy and peace comes from the past. What Jesus has already done. What we've read about this morning. And your joy and peace are tied to the future. What Jesus will do when he returns, what we long for this Advent season, his return, when every tear you've cried that has been bottled up in God's loving sovereignty will be wiped away and all things will be made new. 
And so when we invite people to worship and when we, when we come to worship, we can come with whatever we've got and know that in this place, as we stand before his throne, we can indeed grow in real joy and real peace. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you loved us in this way, that you would send your son into this world. And Lord, even before he came to die, Lord, he came to be born, and to be born in humble and mean conditions, lowly, Lord, in poverty even. His family was displaced uh, at, at, at this time, you know, it was as if they had no home for Christmas. And yet, uh, on the sidelines, in, in a very lowly, not complaining, you came in all humility, and that was but the first step. How amazing it is then to see each step of your humility as also a measurement of your love for us. Lord, will we not be unmoved? Help us, O oh Lord, not to have such grand expectations for the extraordinary that we miss you as you enter the ordinary places of our lives, as you yourself became human, ordinary, and dwelt among us. Lord, would you uh, bless uh, the, re- the preaching and the, the ministry of, of your word this Advent season and in the life of our church. Help us, O oh Lord, like Mary, to treasure it up, to ponder it, that we'd bear fruit over time and grow in joy and peace. And Lord, help us like the shepherds to be not afraid to invite others to come and see, whether they just respond and wonder for a moment and walk away or whether they become like Mary and they treasure up your word and respond in faith, Lord, that's up to you. And Spirit, would you then give us the courage to invite others that they may find joy and peace this Advent as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.